Welcome to Brazen Education with Educator Barnes, a podcast with a focus on speaking your truth, being transparent to help others, and having no shame about it. Because we can't move forward until the truth is known. Welcome back to Brazen Education. This episode is called Why Black Educators Feel Emotionally Unsafe at School. First, I want to preface this with this may not be the case for every single black educator, but too many of us have these experiences. So I think this is a good topic to talk about. I'm going to do something that I haven't done on my podcast before. I'm going to read something I wrote uh, for NDK 12. If you don't already know, I'm a writer for that publication and I'm the editor in chief. And I think this is an important place to start. And I'm going to start there. This piece is called Race and Equity Talks Have Magnified How Emotionally Unsafe I Feel at My School. I don't feel emotionally safe at my current school. Typically, I avoid writing about my current job. I am a middle school academic dean who supervises and evaluates not educators. I never want any person I supervise to believe I'm bashing them online. I am in a position of power and I must use it wisely. Although the majority of my career I have worked for traditional public schools, I am currently employed by a charter network. The executive director of the charter network, the principal, and other staff members have shared with others and me directly how much of an asset I am to the school. My principal even wrote this in my end-of-year performance review. Shantae always maintains a positive attitude and creates a productive work environment around her. She handles stressful situations with great confidence. She is not afraid of difficulties. She is calm and composed under high pressure. She has a great work ethic. She is detail oriented and meets deadlines. I appreciate how she is highly dependable and whenever she promises to accomplish a task, she does it regardless of the circumstances. I enjoy working alongside Shantae and I'm looking forward to another year. When I read these words, I was equally filled with joy and sadness. I was happy because I work hard to be the best at every school where I am employed. I believe students deserve a high level of excellence from the administrators and teachers who serve them. I was sad because stressful situations and difficulties include bullying, harassment, racism, and microaggressions. Let me be direct about the bullying and harassment. A colleague admitted doing that to me, so that's not my words. Despite it all, I have chosen to remain calm. Despite it all, I have pushed through and completed tasks. My internal voice said, Shantae, you are here to serve the kids. It's hard to work with people when you don't trust them or feel emotionally safe around them. I assert that too many black people have learned to play the game of enduring emotionally unsafe environments peacefully so they won't be seen as a threat or have consequences that show up in a performance review. It's important to me to have an excellent performance review and to be seen in a good light by my principal. I did not want to be the source of complaints and I wanted to show that I can handle it all, but I am emotionally exhausted. Now George George Floyd's murder has forced Americans into conversations about racism against black people. First, came the statements of solidarity with the black community. Now, 
organizations are having race and equity talks. The executive director of my charter organization is having a listening tour this entire week. I attended the first session earlier in the week. The staff members who attended were black and Latino. No white staff members attended. This was an opportunity to share our thoughts. I was angry the entire time. I did not feel safe the entire time. I only shared a fraction of what I wanted to say. The fraction I shared prompted an apology email from the executive director to me and an invitation to help with the work to make the school a better place. However, I don't know if I have it in me to help. A few points that I shared, I have shared before this school year and nothing changed. Sharing all the negative situations that have happened to me this school year put me in a situation to re-traumatize myself and relive it. Listening to other people share was emotionally taxing, even though I already knew some of their stories. I have not slept well since participating in the listening tour. And this was only the listening tour. I'm taking a risk today writing about how I currently feel knowing that could result in some negative ramifications. However, I need school leaders to know this process is traumatizing for black staff members. We are being asked to share these experiences that most of us have choked down just so we can function at work. It is how we survive. Bernice King, Dr. King's daughter, recently tweeted, even the statement, let's invite more black people to the table, implies ownership of the table and control of who is invited. Racism is power. Her words resonated with me. I'm humbled by the fact that I have been invited to the table many times. Too often I learn I have no power. The table is nothing more than the opportunity to check a box to claim issues are being addressed. If I'm going to potentially put myself through trauma, stress and backlash, because we all know race and equity where it comes with backlash, I want to at least have the power to make a change. Beneath my calmness, a fire is raging. I want to believe I'll keep a lid on it and stay professional. The current climate of America is a pressure cooker. And writer James Baldwin said, to be a Negro in this country and to be relatively conscious is to be enraged almost all the time. Some people fear black people, but angry black people are the most feared. We should be angry. We deserve to be angry. Right now, my rage wants to knock over the table, light it on fire, enjoy watching it burn and gather some black people and build our own table. Where can black people be safe? We can't be safe at home, in public or at work. We definitely are not safe at someone else's table. School leaders engaging in race and equity work need to know it will be hard. The ugliest parts of the organization will be brought to light. The school leader would either be guilty of participating in the harm or allowing it to thrive. The ways the school operates will need to change. People will need to be fired or coached out. Curricula will need to be decolonized and re-envisioned. Students will need to be included. They have stories too. If school leaders can't handle all of this or are not ready to do this, the race and equity work will truly not take place. I am no longer interested in being at any table where I will be triggered for the sake of show or checking a box. 
Right now, I don't know what I'm going to do. I am conflicted. Black staff members are conflicted. If our black lives really mattered at our school, why are leaders only listening to us now? Why did it take George Floyd's death and worldwide protests for school leaders to care now about the oppression we have faced and our students have faced? We are being asked to trust that the situation will change. Historically speaking, we have records that show time and time again, nothing changes and the grips of white supremacy and the status quo reign supreme. And so that's what I wrote. And when I truly say I took a risk, I took a risk because typically if you follow what I write or you've listened to what I say, you know that sometimes I don't get into the specifics. And honestly, that's for self-preservation because I like being an educator. I like serving students and their family, and I don't want to jeopardize that opportunity. But on the other hand, I know if we don't start addressing these serious issues in society, in our community, in our school. We will be stuck with the status quo. We'll just buckle and say, well, white supremacy is the law of the land and that's how it is. And, and the fight, the anger, the rage, the fire that's burning with Emmy just can't accept like this is how it's going to be. Like, I don't want to accept that this is how it's going to be for my children and for my grandchildren. And if I want to be honest right now, my twin sons are nine. They are nine years old and they have already faced racism. They've already been discriminated against. They've already been mistreated at school. They've already been judged for being nothing more than a boy who has black skin. And if that's the plight of my children, how can I operate in the school when I know that's the plight of other children? How can I go and collect my check and do nothing or say nothing? And that's the crossroads you're stuck between when you're a black educator. You're stuck between self uh, preserving yourself or looking out for the kids. And you say to yourself, I took this oath when I decided to become an educator, when I decided to get this job, I'm doing it because I love children. I want them to learn. And if I'm silent, if I'm silent, then I'm saying that's okay because silence is violence. Silence is being complicit. Silence is saying, you know, I'm okay with it. But at the same time, I'm tired. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I'm, I'm mentally worn out. I don't want to go through and rehash every bad thing that's ever happened to it. So you can hear it and then you can acknowledge it. So you can apologize for me to me and then nothing changes. Like, what's the point? I mean, is, are you going to pay my therapy bill? Because real talk, a lot of us need to be in therapy right now. And I've been really transparent about the fact that I've been in therapy before. But all these events that's been happening, it makes me feel like I'm going to be right back in there. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with seeing the therapist. And that's and that's the stigma in the black community. So our community's already stigmatized. And honestly, you know, for a lot of us, we don't want to talk to a white person about about this stuff. We don't feel safe. And so... You want to have these these conversations, but even in a conversation, we don't feel safe because we know we know <laughs> we know about this whole crab in the bucket syndrome. We know that some black people, for the sake of preserving themselves, will throw you under the damn bus so they can stay on top. So if I, I get too honest, somebody who looks like me may stab me in the back. 
If I get too honest, then I got the other people. And that person could be white. That person could be Latino. And I've shared across my social media, and I appreciate these people. Um, I shared a piece about um, Asians and how they need to combat um, anti-black racism. I shared a piece about Latinos and how they need to combat anti-black racism. So a lot of times when we have these conversations, we get caught up in the white-black thing. But when you're black, you have felt the, the, the boot on your neck from people who don't look like you and not just white folks. And I uh, follow uh, native Twitter or indigenous Twitter. And even in some of those conversations, and I, I, I just sit back and listen because I'm here to learn um, from my indigenous brothers and sisters. But even within that community, I hear black indigenous people talk about how they've been oppressed within their own indigenous community. So it doesn't really matter where we are or who you with even another group of, of people of color could come against us and, and to me that that's that's so tr- so tragic because this is not the um I, we talk a lot when i talk to different people people who are of color but they're not black we talk about this is not the oppression olympics if you don't know what that is that's when Let's say I'm black and I talk about the things bad that's happened to me and then you're not black. Let's just say you're indigenous or you're Latino. And then you say, but what about what's happening to me? It's not a competition. But if we know all of us are facing some type of racism and discrimination, we don't need to discriminate against other groups of color. That don't make any sense. And so my experience has not just been discrimination and, and racism from white people it's been from other groups of people of color and so you feel and then then you have those people that are black who feel like the only way I can be okay is to throw another black person on the bus and so now you feel like I I think I mostly can trust the black folks but you know some of y'all may be a little shady and be a crab in the bucket trying to pull me down I don't know about the white people because like time and time again I got experience after experience after experience after experience of bad things happening and if you don't have the experience, you have people in your family has the experience. I mean, I think about the time when I was at my father's childhood house that his brother used to live in before it was sold. And my dad told me, he told me, and I can't remember how old he was. He was somewhere between the ages of 10 and 13. But he told me how a white guy pulled a gun on him. Now, my dad is 70. He literally has had a job since he was 10. And that's just so his family could survive. With the exception of when he was in the Marines, my dad has literally had a job um, since he was 10 years old. And so he was out just doing one of his jobs. And he did all types of stuff. Uh, washing windows, doing yard work, uh, doing being a newspaper boy. Man was going to shoot him because they thought he had uh, was somebody else and had did something. And then my dad says, and then another white person comes out. And please on my behalf. And when I was listening to my dad tell me the story, and he has told me so many stories, I, I just thought about what must it have felt like for my dad to be in the middle where you have one white person condemning you and you have another white person fighting and say, oh, no, he's a good Negro. Not this one. And then I thought about how I told my dad um, there's a um, popular magnet school here in Indianapolis that's offered me a job three times and three times I've turned it down because I've had another offer that I've liked better. And one of the times I was talking to my dad about it and my dad said, oh, uh, that school? Yeah, I, I had to be escorted into the neighborhood around that school. And I said, dad, what do you mean? And so my dad told me about how he would do yard work over there. And again, 
white folks would come out and be like, what you doing in this neighborhood and harass him. So you had to have a white man escort him into the neighborhood. And I, when I was listening to, the, to my dad say this so he could do the work, you know, to get the few coins so his family could be OK. And when I heard my dad tell me this story, I thought about what it must feel like to have a white person vouch for you so you can go collect a few little coins so your family could survive. And so those, those are my father's experiences. I'm not talking about my grandparents or my great grandparents. I'm talking about my dad who is still alive and walking this earth. And you probably say, well, Shantae, that's so horrible. But see, when you're a black parent, your job is to inform your kids of the experiences you've had. And I won't share some of the stuff that my dad shared about his work and his job, but he shared time and time again about some experiences so I could be prepared to walk into the workplace knowing that this is probably going to happen. But I still walked in. I, still, I walked in year one optimistic saying, you know what? You know, we're in the 2000s because I started teaching in 2006. We're in the 2000s. I, I know my dad said this, this, these bad things happened to him. These things won't happen to me at my job. I won't get discriminated at my job because we we are so far advanced. Year one, I got called an affirmative action hire. Year one, I was told that I stole a job from a white person. I stole the job. That's how my career started. And every single school year, I can tell you something that has happened that I would classify as a microaggression, racism, harassment, or bullying every single year of my 14 year career I have a story and anyone who knows me knows that I'm I'm very introverted believe it or not um, even this school year we took a, a personality test and uh, on my personality test it came out that was 90 percent introverted and I was really shocked at that number because honestly I thought it would come up at 95 or something uh, but I'm not shy. I just when I'm in big, large gatherings, I don't talk much. And some of you who have met me in person um, because it's kind of weird. It's like, oh, hey, you write for NDK 12. And I'm like, hey, <laughs> oh, you're trying to take a selfie with me right now. This is weird because um, I'm really, really like I, I just really try to hang and just be. And I'm not, you know, <laughs> I try. I'm telling you, I try. So if I look awkward, socially awkward, I am a socially awkward person. I will cop to that. And that is OK. I own the fact that sometimes I come off as a weird, quirky black woman. And I'm OK with that. I love myself. But that's the thing. I have to love myself. I have to speak words of affirmation to myself to get through at work because I know these things could happen. I know I could be in an environment. And then on top of that, so I'm in this toxic turbulent environment and still I have to perform and time and time again I have principals say I love working with Shantae I hope you come back next school year you know you you got great dating with kids you know you hardly send no kids out of the classroom man you coach that teacher well time and time again so do you know how hard it is to do all those things when you are trying to choke down negative comments that's been said to you you're trying to choke down people trying to snitch and tattle on you about nothing I mean the things that people have tried to literally throw me on your bus for, and then I had to go and then I had to go and explain myself. Do you know how many times I had to go explain myself because some white person at my job and brought up something? Oh, Shantae's using that third novel. Oh, oh, Shantae um, uh, is having the kids do this extra project. Not worrying about your low data, not worrying about the fact that you kicking kids out of class, but you worrying about me. They got good data. 
that's managing my class well, that by all accounts to everyone else, I'm an asset, I'm a benefit to the school. And instead of those conversations being nipped in the bud, I get asked, I get brought to the carpet to explain and justify myself to, to appease this person that's bringing up some concerns. It's happened this school year. It's happened at previous jobs. And I, and I told my dad because I normally I, I have to balance between venting between my dad and my husband because I don't want to put all the burden on my husband because he has his own experiences. Uh, what what it's like to have his job. My husband's also an administrator. He's in technology. And that and I mean, when you're a black administrator like we are and you are uh, over white people, that's an interesting dynamic. So you really have to mind your P's and your Q's and you mind your manners because I don't know how else to say this, because if you're too tough, then white folks start crying. And when white people start shedding tears, I don't care what you do. You look like you're guilty of something because they start crying. Now, let my black little self go in and start crying. Nobody's going to care. And if you know me, I'm not I'm not one one of those crying folks. So that and there's nothing wrong with crying. I'm not saying that I'm just not a person that just bursts into tears. It's just it's not what I do. Um, I'm one of those people that kind of <laughs> I'm calm. I'm like, I'm mad. <laughs> I'm normally not a crier. But you have to balance this. So I have to think about how much of the, the, the frustration do I dump on my husband and how much do I dump on my dad? So this time I decided to dump on my dad. And I said, Daddy, I am sick and I'm tired of explaining myself to people. Why do I have to keep explaining myself? I'm tired of it. And my dad says something to the effect of that's just how it is. They think they can ask you anything at any time. They feel like they have the right to demand that of you. That's the system. That's white supremacy. When any any time they can bring you to the carpet and ask you to justify your action, even if there's no justification for it. But if someone else is actually doing something, actually doing harm, well, you know, you get that well, you know, which is a long way for they are about to walk around the bush the long way and explain how they're not going to do anything. And, you know, why don't you just keep to yourself and keep doing a good job? I mean, I am so tired of being your token good Negro. I'm so tired of being that. Throughout my career, I've been the only black English teacher in the department. I've been the only black English language learner teacher for the whole district. Only black librarian for the whole district. And even at my school, my principal's biracial. She's uh, black and white. But I would consider myself the only black minister at my school because I see my friends as biracial. And so when you're in those spaces, when you're the only, you know, you're going to come to the table with ideas that potentially are going to be different. And you know how you're going to be met. And and you because you know, all these things, you're like, I have to be the best. I have to show black excellence because I don't want anybody to think that I was only hired because of my skin color. I have to prove time and time and time again. And then they say, Shantae, I'll pat you on the back. Shantae, you're so great. You know, you're so good with the kids. Oh, I like how you did this. And it's just like, that's all I am to you. I'm just a token. I'm just a trophy. I'm your little black person that you can just kick out here and say, look how, how great Shantae is. We got diversity here. And look, and our diversity even gets results. That's how I've been made to feel. And I'm tired. And I started my summer break this week. And you would think I would be relaxing chilling, enjoying myself, but I've been drained. I've been stressed. I have had sleepless nights. And on top of that, I, uh, 
I mentor uh, other other educators and many of them are black, not all of them. And so on top of that, I'm listening to their stories and I listen because as much as I need to be able to dump to someone, I know they need to be able to dump to someone. And when I hear their stories, I I can relate because it's like, yeah, that's happened to me. And yeah. And that, too. And and that, too. And then I, I give them a little pep talk. I say, you know, you know, just try this. And, you know, we, we got to keep speaking up. And it's like I got to say it out loud, not just only to convince them. I got to say it out loud again to convince myself if we just keep speaking up, if we just keep advocating, if we just all band together it all get get better. And then you wonder why you hear black people say stuff like <laughs> forget this. Forget the whole system. Let's just all get come together and just go away and just, and build our own thing. Because there is a video clip that's floating around the Internet. And it's James Baldwin, who I quoted in my piece. And, and he says something to the effect, it's taking my mother's time. It's taking my grandmother's time. And he says, how long for your progress? And that's how I feel. How long? Because the progress is so slow. I think about my great-grandparents. You want to know why I live in Indiana? You want to know why? It's because my great-grandparents, they lived in Georgia. They lived in Georgia. And the Ku Klux Klan burned down their house twice. Twice. And on the second occasion, I'm not going to say what I was told they were said. They uh, uh, were told that they, um, was, was said um, to them. But it essentially said, if you stay around here, it's not going to just be your house the next time. So in the middle of the night, my great grandparents gathered up their children and went north. (laughs) And you know the irony of the story? They stopped in Indiana. The first child they had in Indiana was my grandmother. (laughs) And and why that's ironic, if you don't know, one of the biggest hubs of the KKK was right here in good old Indiana. And so that's where my uh, family land. That's why we're here up in the north, because they were escaping terror. So. I'm supposed to be happy <laughs> that the that in 2020, at least the Ku Klux Klan hasn't burned down my house. So when I hear James Ball, when I hear that clip and he says, how long for your progress? I felt every single word that man was saying, because if this is the progress, is that, oh, the KKK is not putting a cross in my yard and not burning down my house. They're saying they're going to burn me and my kids alive. You know, you know, it must be great. You know, Shantae, you know, Shantae, you know, you got, you got a good job. You were, you were able to go to college because my great grandparents couldn't read. And I, and my sons, both my sons are published authors. My dad said to me, my grandparents couldn't read, but my grandsons are published authors. That shouldn't, I mean, is that, is that the, the, the bar for progress right now? Cause I, I want more. I want more. And so right now, as I, I wrap this up, I can't tell you what I want to do. All I can tell you right now is I'm mad. <laughs> I'm angry. I'm upset. And I'm tired of feeling like this. But I can't escape it. It's, it's on Twitter. It's on LinkedIn. It's on Facebook. It's on Instagram. It's on the TV. If I call my parents, they're talking about it. My friends are talking about it. <laughs> the, the race, the conversation is right there in my face. And I, I can't look away. I can't escape. I can't choose to opt out because I'm raising black sons. So they they got to be informed. That's why we sat there and watched the Sesame Street uh, town hall about racism. And even that made me have a conversation I didn't want to have. I'm like, this is Sesame Street. We, we can watch it. But they showed the protest. And my son says, Mom, 
This sign does not belong in a protest. Can they explain what a protest is? Why people would protest? Well, one, the, 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 they show like video of protests, you know, peaceful protests. And we can have a whole side conversation about why putting the word peaceful in front of the word protest is problematic. So I'll, we'll say that for another time. And my son says, that, that sign makes no sense. I said, what sign? He says, I can't breathe. Why are people carrying that? Now, you know darn good well, I can't explain that sign to my son unless I tell him why people are carrying that sign. But my son saw the other signs that were saying Black Lives Matter. Okay, that makes sense. Mommy says I'm important. I'm black. That makes sense. You know, racism must end. Okay, yeah, that, that makes sense. But the I can't breathe sign, he's like, that, what does that have to do with anything? So I told my sons before we even watched that, you know, some black people had died. And, you know, that's making people have this conversation. But I didn't tell them how they died. And so I, I, I was processing. What do I say to my son who's asking me why, why this sign is there? It doesn't belong. Because, you know, we're watching Sesame Street. And you know, on Sesame Street, they have that segment on one of these things is not like the other. So he's like, this mommy, this, this doesn't fit. And so I started to explain. I said, well, a police officer killed a man and he suffocated to death. He, he cut off his ability to breathe and he suffocated. And my other son says, but the, the police are community helpers because, <laughs> you know, that's what they teach them in school, because early elementary and social studies class, you learn about who's in your community. You know, the mailman, the fireman, be a good citizen. And so even me saying this to my children, they're like, mom, mom, that doesn't make sense. And so I can't opt out of this conversation because I can't have my sons be naive and be out in the world and think everything's happy go lucky. I can't have them living in the fantasy of Louis Armstrong song. You know, I think to myself, what a wonderful world because the world isn't wonderful. That's all a facade. So I had to explain to my nine-year-old sons that the people that are supposed to protect and serve us murdered one of us while the video camera was rolling. Cause I, and, I, and I had I had some friends that showed their children the video. And I, I, I've chosen not to show my children the video. It's bad enough I have to have the conversation. I don't need to traumatize them for letting them watch eight minutes and 46 seconds of someone's life being snuffed out. No. But I had a Break part of their bubble, part of their innocence more today to explain that to them. So, again, I don't know what I'm going to do, but if you're a school leader and you're listening, you got to take this seriously. And I strongly suggest that you offer some mental health services to your employees that you're traumatizing through this process because we're going to need it. And if you're not really ready for the change, then maybe you should step down and leave. Because when you look at schools, a lot of times, the higher up you get, the whiter it gets. And a lot of the people at the top are maintaining the status quo. They're allowing white supremacy to reign. And so I wish at the end of this podcast, I had a sweet little message for you guys. I wish I could offer you some words of hope. So I'll go back to what my grandmother used to tell me. She would say this simply. And when she got up each day, she says, I thank the Lord for giving me one more day on the earth. 
I got I got breath in my body and I got I get another chance. So I'll leave you with that. I got I got another chance. I don't know what's going to happen with my chance. I don't know if I'll get another chance because that's the reality of being black in America. You don't, you don't know how many more chances you're going to get. You don't know if you'll get to die at a naturally old, ripe age. You don't know. But as long as I have life and as long as I wake up the next day, it's an opportunity. It's a possibility that something might change. And that's the thing I have to hold on to today to keep me moving forward. Because if I don't have that, I'm nothing but a ball of rage. And we already know what anger can do. It can be destructive. And I want my anger to be constructive. And the only way it can be constructive if I couple it with there's a possibility that it might get better. Thanks for listening.